In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned for 12 years, six of them in Terzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shamer for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria, after Shamer, the name of the former owner of the hill. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, committing the same sin Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit, so that they aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did and the things he achieved, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Omri rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. This is God's word. Okay, thank you. This is God's word. This is God's word. This is God's word. It is. It is. All scripture is God breathed, useful for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness. We know that. We know that. We've been a Christian for any length of time. Just may not be electric in every time we read it. But let's pray and have a look at these chapters together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're a good Father who knows what we need. And you know that we need to read and understand and change our lives in response to 1 Kings 16. So help us, we pray, to understand why you record such details for us. And to change our lives accordingly to those which bring glory and praise to your name. Amen. We can, I think, I think it is okay to be honest with one another and say, at first glance, this is a boring chapter. I think that's okay to say, at first glance. It's not electric, is it? It reminded me, uh, uh, age 11, I went to secondary school for two years. I was taught history by Lord Retford. He was a minor aristocrat, clearly down at Hill, and needed to earn some money as a school teacher. Uh, and so he would come in, and his obsession was Anglo-Saxon history. And for, he'd come in, and for 40 minutes, open your books. We'd open our books. Take up your pens. We took up our pens. I will tell you about the agricultural policy of Hengist and Horsa. We'll have to write every detail down of the agricultural and sheep farming policy of Hengist and Horsa. And let me tell you, that is not electric either. Uh, Fortunately, he retired. Uh, And I developed a love of history after that. But you read 1 Kings 16 and you think, this doesn't make my heart sore, if I'm honest. Uh, And as a preacher, it's very tempting to think, Yes, chapters 15 to 16, yes. Now, the next few chapters, 17 to 19, they're electric. Uh, Elijah comes on the scene, has massive battles. He's calling down lightning from heaven. It's funny. There's satire. You laugh. It's dramatic. Brilliant. Uh, And they're not for today. They're for some point after Easter. So we've got 1 1 Kings 16. Why? Blah took the throne, he sinned, he died, he reigned X years, and then there was Blah, who took the throne, he sinned and he died, and he reigned, and then Blah took the throne after him, and Blah reigned and he sinned and he died. And And it seems that this chapter 
is recorded before the drama of uh, Elijah coming on the scene as God's prophet. To make the point to us, actually rejecting the Lord and pursuing idols is just really boring. Oh, you might think at first glance there's, there's some excitement to be had, uh, ignoring God and rejecting him and, and pursuing whatever you want to pursue. Actually, it constructs nothing. Its legacy is nothing. And after a while, it's actually just a bit boring. And I think that is the point, to show us that rejecting the Lord and pursuing idols is dull. A life lived for things other than him is not worthwhile. And that's why it's here. It's deliberately dull, I think, is the point of 1 Kings 16. Now, uh, let's orientate ourselves. If you're joining us today, we're working our way through this uh, book of 1 Kings in different chunks. Really, I guess you'd say it's the story of God's people being unfaithful to the Lord, but he is still faithful to them. If you wanted a summary of the whole cycle of 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, and uh, in the autumn term, we looked at chapters 1 to 11, and things are broadly positive under Solomon. Solomon is a good king, broadly. Um, not perfect, but when his reign ends, things start to spiral down from chapter 12 onwards. And after him, the kingdom splits. So we've got a, a sort of family tree back again. Look at that. Um, so David, David is, is the great king. After him, Solomon, his son, and the kingdom splits in 931 BC. And uh, there's the southern kingdom of Judah, two tribes in Judah. God promises there will always be a king in the line of David in Judah. Always. And because of God's promise, things go okay in Judah. Even when the kings are bad, you normally get a decent one afterwards. Things go okay in Judah. But in the northern kingdom, uh, Jeroboam is the first wicked king. It's just chaos. It's just chaos. And that's what we get today. You get a king, his son might reign, but then there's a coup. Then there's a coup. Then there's a coup. And so Israel in the north spirals down much faster. There are no good kings in Israel. Judah, it, it varies. It varies. And so the two names that slightly dominate uh, one and two kings are David and Jeroboam. If you're a good king, you're like David. If you're a bad king, you're like Jeroboam. And we use that sort of language. You might say, oh, he's a magnificent leader like Churchill. Uh, or more commonly, he's no Churchill. But, you know, that's a sort of paradigm of someone who's good. Or you might say, oh, he's a Hitler-like leader. Oh, he's wicked and despicable. And that's how the names get used in this book. If you're good, he followed the ways of David. If you're evil, you follow the ways of Jeroboam. Those two names dominate. Chapter 16 is all about Israel in the north. In fact, really, from this point until 2 Kings 8, it's all about Israel in the north, and they're spiral down and down and down and down. Three things. Three things to observe. So sort of comments on the whole chapter. I think the things that we're meant to pick out. There's responsibility within sovereignty. But then I think you'd summarize the dominant ideas as these two. There's monotony of idolatry, but there's a legacy of fidelity. Let's work through them. Okay, first, 1 Kings 16. There is responsibility within God's sovereignty. This chapter, there are four kings, four bad kings, all wicked, all responsible for their wickedness. 
And yet the drumbeat of the chapter is according to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. So chapter 16, verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jehu, son of Hanani. And verse 7, the word of the Lord came through Jehu. And uh, verse 12, everything that Jehu says of chapter 16, verse 12, happens. It all happens in accordance with the word of the Lord. That's the sort of drumbeat in the background. But let's just look at some of the details. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord comes to the prophet, Jehu, son of Hanani, concerning Baasha. So I lifted you up from the dust. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel, but you followed the ways of Jeroboam. You caused my people to sin. You aroused my anger by their sin. So I'm about to wipe out Baasha and his house. I'll make your house like that of Jeroboam. Okay, you've acted like Jeroboam. You've been wicked. You've encouraged the people to be immoral, unjust. So you'll be treated like Jeroboam, wiped out. More details in verse 7. Moreover, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Jehu, son of Hanani, to Baasha and his house. And why is Baasha judged? It's because of all the evil he had done in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger by the things he did, becoming like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. Now, it's that last clause that sometimes gets people upset. If you were here last time, Jeroboam is a wicked king. And God says, Jeroboam, you will be destroyed. And Basha will destroy you. Here, Basha is judged in part for destroying the former king. So there's a very obvious tension there. Basha, you will be judged for destroying Jeroboam. But God has said, Jeroboam will be destroyed. God had predicted it. God had superintended it. God was sovereign over those events. He wanted Jeroboam to go. And yet he he judges Basha for doing just that. Do you see the sort of tension that's there? And what you're not allowed to do here is view Basha as just some hammer or axe in the hand of God. God wants to destroy the former king Jeroboam and he just uses Basha to, to destroy him uh, and Basha has no choice. In one sense, yes, but in another sense, Basha chooses to do evil here. And so what you get throughout this chapter, and it's really representative of what's going on in the book from the next 12 chapters, You've got wicked kings doing despicable acts and they are responsible for them and they are judged for them. And yet God is still sovereign over all those. He knows and in fact he uses one wicked king to kill another wicked king and so on. He encourages evil to eat itself in the narrative. So God uses the evil deeds of men to achieve his purposes. But he still judges them for it. And in this book, you have to hold those together. In fact, in the Bible, you have to hold those together. It's the same throughout the Bible. You see it supremely, I guess, in the death of Jesus Christ. 
So, for example, uh, in Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, uh, Jesus will say, the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to that man, Judas, who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. Oh, look, Judas is going to betray me because that was always the way it was going to happen. It's been, that was the case before the foundation of the world, but Judas will be judged for that because it's a wicked thing. Or Acts 2.23 Uh, Peter is preaching to the crowds and can declare, this man, Jesus, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God knew it. God planned it. God arranged it. And yet, when the men did it, it was wicked and wrong, and they'll be judged for it. Both are true. And the Bible insists that both are true. So what? What? It's an academic exercise. Well, of course, it helps you make sense in in, in part of periods of history, perhaps, knowing that that's the case. So you can look back, and I have no divine word on this, but you can look back and say, well, into the Second World War, uh, God used Stalin's army, the Red Army, to come in and uh, help defeat the Nazi regime. Undoubtedly, that's the case. And undoubtedly, it's the case that they liberated concentration camps but they were pretty abhorrent as they did so. It's a good thing they did. Using an evil regime to defeat a greater evil of the time or a greater threat, that's a good thing. But it's all evil. But they will be judged for that. God is sovereign. Humans will be accountable. You've got to hold both together. But look, where does that really matter? Oh, it matters. It matters in the world today. If you were a Christian in northern Iraq, or a Yazidi in northern Iraq, perhaps, you, you look upon and you think, oh, the, the Kurdish PK, PKK is actually fighting against ISIS, and, and they're probably saving our lives, the PKK, the Kurdish workers' front. That's good. But they're a pretty wicked organization as well. I mean, they are bombing people in Ankara. They are deemed terrorists. It's very complicated. But God is sovereign or judge. And you need to know that when life is very mucky and complicated. If you're a Christian in northern Iraq, well, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? This is, this is unclear, isn't it? Who, who's in, who are in the white hats to protect us and who are in the black hats to kill us? Because they just seem all, all different shades of black here. Where? It's okay. Is God still in control? Of course he is. Of course he is. Will they be judged for their wickedness? Yes, they will. But you need to hold together that God is in control and yet humans are accountable for what they do. And actually, it's in the pain of life that that matters most when things seem out of control. Or at a much more prosaic level, I can think of you know, times when a, a, a husband has abandoned his wife and moved overseas and set up home with someone new overseas. And, and the abandoned woman says, well, is God not in control? Yes, he is. But if God's in control, how can he allow that to happen? Oh, your, your ex-spouse, well, he is held accountable for that. And that's when, in a very personal way, you need to know those things are true. That every human is held accountable for what they do. And yet, God is sovereign over it all. 
And he could achieve his purposes even through the acts of evil. There is human responsibility within God's sovereignty. And you'll have it relentlessly throughout this book of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came. It happened according to the word of the Lord. He was judged according to the word of the Lord. He destroyed according to the word of the Lord. But where those actions are evil, they're judged. You have to hold those two together. There's responsibility within sovereignty. Let's move on. That's, that's sort of a, co- a comment that's here in chapter 16, but it's here in, in all these chapters uh, until the end uh, of the book, really. But here, I think, is the burden of chapter 16. And let's look secondly, then, at the monotony of idolatry. The monotony of idolatry. Because a key element of, of this chapter is that nothing interesting happens. That's the point. He takes the throne, he sins, he dies. What did he achieve? Well, you can read about it over there. You can go on Wikipedia and read about it. But God just yawns at this man's life. It was useless, or worse than useless. So what happens? You get these, uh, all four kings that you look at here, but they just lead the people into idolatry. So verse 13, you look at Basha and Elah. Because of all the sins of Basha and his son Elah had committed and caused Israel to commit, they aroused the anger of the Lord of God of Israel by their worthless idols. Let's not worship God. Let's worship Baal and Asherah. And when we pray to them, the rain will fall. And if we have sex at their shrines, so that, that encourages their... I mean, it's, it's, it's the most pathetic of religions. Hey, Baal and Asherah, do you know what you're meant to do? You're meant to rain on the earth. So give us fertility. Fertility looks a bit like this. And so you go and visit your, your prostitute at the shrine and, and engage in the act to try and remind the gods what fertility looks like. It's the most abhorrent, you know, ridiculous thing. Anyway, that's what's encouraged here. So verses, uh, verse 13, yes, and you get the same in verse 19. Zimri, he's done evil. Verse 26, Omri, follow the ways of Jeroboam, committing evil. Nothing very exciting here. Now there are some details about them, I guess. You, you could presumably make something fun out of Elah and uh, his death. Um, getting drunk. I mean, Elah, he's not a great king. Uh, his army is doing the right thing. His army are fighting the Philistines. That's good. But where is Elah? Where well, we're told, verse 9, Elah is just getting drunk with his mates in their house. And um, he thinks he's having a great time. But anyway, someone comes along and kills him. Zimri. So Zimri, well, he launches a coup, but no one supports him. So he commits suicide. In uh, verse 18, he goes down in a blaze of self-pity. Just despairing, and that's not very good either. It's a bit like, what's his name? Denethor in The Lord of the Rings, the last film. You know, just creates a sort of funeral pyre and throws himself on it, despairs, just self-pity. What about Omri? Omri's a bit more interesting. Um, Verse 23, there's been civil war in the land, and then Omri takes the throne. Well, that's a bit better. In the, in the, so verse 23, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri becomes king of Israel. He reigned for 12 years. Well, that's a bit more like it. Um, he, uh, verse 24, he bought the hill of Samaria, uh, built a city on the hill. He called it Samaria and made that his capital. Well, that's a bit more interesting. His dynasty, he reigns for 12 years. His dynasty, he, they have about 40 years. Uh, Ahab and family after him, that's a bit more like it. Um, and uh, he gets a new capital city. Well, that's quite interesting, I guess. And you can read the secular history. You can go to the Louvre uh, in Paris and read about 
Omri. He's quite big news at the time. In the Moabite history, there's a sort of old, um, what's the word I'm after? Archaeological relic, the Moabite stone. And you can read about Omri and what a nuisance he was and how he harassed the Moabites. He was clearly, you know, there was something about Omri. He was a significant military leader. And yet all that God really chooses to record about him is he took the throne, he sinned, he died. Now, you can imagine the newspapers making some fun of these sort of stories. You know, Elah, he's king, but he gets so drunk, he can't defend himself, and there's a coup. You know, that's good, that's, that's good, reporta- you know, that's good copy for the sun, isn't it? You can imagine the sun headlines of those sort of things. Drunken king, you know, stabbed. You know, they'd muck about with that. They'd have some fun. You know, you could get some good news out of that, I, I guess. And Omri, Omri creates a new capital city. Well, that's... You can imagine the FT getting very supportive about that, or the amount of jobs that this will create, the sort of new infrastructure. You know, who's going to build the airport, and you know, will the pollution levels be too high? And, you know, lots of debate and discussion, but you know, the FT will be excited about that. And yet, all these details produced from heaven is a yawn. You essentially get the same shrug of the shoulders from the Lord as He records what these men do. Verse 14. Whereas for everything that Elah did, you can read about it in the annals. Verse 20. Everything that Zimri did, well, you can read about it in the annals. Everything Omri did, verse 27, well, you can read about it in the annals. What are we meant to learn? The pursuing idols is just boring. And a sinful rejection of the Lord is just repetitive. Oh, look what we've discovered. And, and look what, oh yeah, whatever, says the Lord. It's just the same. And you might look at these chapters and say, well, it sounds a bit glamorous, you know, sort of launching a coup, you know, building a new capital city. Sounds impressive. It's boringly repetitive. Nothing lasting is built here. There is no worthwhile legacy of any of these kings. Oh, they may reign for 12 years. They may reign for 22 years. They may build a new city. But God says you've achieved nothing of any worth at all. Your life was wasted and worse than wasted. And I guess you see that around tonight. For some reason, I, uh, I, I uh, googled, uh, uh, just out of interest, Basha al-Assad, I wonder what do, what do, the, what do the oligarchs, what do the, the, the rulers and the despots of the world today do? So you, you can go to Basha al-Assad, he's got a Twitter feed, did you know that? I discovered that this week, he's got a Twitter feed, and you can go and read his Twitter feed. And if you go and read Basha al-Assad's Twitter feed, you'll think, there is a staggering boredom to your life. It essentially says, I visited some troops and I blew up something. I visited some troops and I blew up something. Uh, that's it. I mean... I'm sure blowing up things is quite fun for a while, but that's all that's recorded. Of course, he's fighting for his life, but actually the day-to-day tedium of his life is extraordinary, according to his own testimony. Well, I read um, a little while ago, Time magazine interviewed uh, Sergei Pugachev, uh, who was known as the Kremlin's banker. He was one of the intimates of uh, Putin's regime, uh, worth billions and billions, something like 85 billion at his peak, uh, he's slightly fallen out of favor and fled to the West, uh, as you might do. So he might well have an axe to grind, I accept that. But it's striking, his interview 
uh, or his description of the Putin regime. He declared it this way. Vladimir Putin is not someone who has strategic plans. He lives entirely from day to day, entertaining himself. Oh, he has great enthusiasm for certain projects. It can be all-encompassing, but all of a sudden evaporates with no explanation given. I told him I was building a luxury hotel. And Putin got so animated by this that he started designing the layout of every individual suite within the hotel. And then two weeks later, he cancelled it for no reason, told me I couldn't build it. He'd simply become bored. You might think that the leader of Russia has something better to do than worry about the taps that are going to go into a hotel room. But no, he's just bored. Because, well, what is he achieving apart from self-preservation? It's very boring. Now, I take it, I I accept, not many of us here are despots, not to my knowledge. Um, And therefore, our idols are slightly different creatures. It's not just keeping ourselves in power, but... But idolatry is idolatry, and it's still boring. So without God, or if we sideline God, then we we have to project meaning onto finite goods. Could be whatever it is, mountains of money, or the perfect buff body, or terrific travel, or the ideal home. doesn't matter, but we project our hopes and our meaning, what gets us excited, onto just finite goods. And after a while, they're boring. They just bore. It's a bit like, forgive me for this, but it's a bit like expecting sexual fulfillment from, from pornography. It'll give you a quick buzz and excitement, but after a while, pff, nothing. And if you're a habitual user, you just become inured to any pleasure. And that's true of any idol. It could be the same with your career. It could be the same with trying to achieve the perfect physique, the perfect home. So I read a couple of weeks ago of wealth fatigue syndrome. This is the hardest medical condition in the world to have any sympathy with. (laughs) Wealth fatigue syndrome. I'm just bored of having too much money, in other words. And so it was an interview with a man called Manfred de Vries. He's a therapist to the super rich, which doesn't sound like the most challenging job, but that's what he is. And he observes, I mean, we might guess this, I guess, but he observes, for the super rich, houses, yachts, cars and planes are like new toys. They play with for five minutes and they lose interest in, and they sink into a kind of inertia, desperate for something else to excite them. Even worse are the super rich wives. They are effectively unemployed unemployed, and have all the same mental issues and battles of the real unemployed. He's just saying there's a monotony to idolatry. You want to accumulate, you know, oh, it wouldn't be wonderful to have all the money of a whoever it is, and Abramovich, and do what you want. No, it'd be really boring. Really boring. Unless you invest in the Lord in some way. Having money, but investing in the Lord's work, oh, that's different. But just doing it for yourself. Oh, there's a monotony to idolatry. How tragic if the activity of our life, which we think initially so exciting, We just get most excited or most delighted by whatever our project is, the house, the promotion, the holiday, but all of the things that we get really excited about. They just elicit from the Lord a shrug of the shoulders. Oh, how boring. You're excited about that, are you? Oh, 
What a waste. And one one King 16 would say to us, for goodness sake, do something interesting for God. Do something that matters. Do something that lasts. Do something that has a legacy. Just don't invest everything into idols that are just boring. And at the end achieve nothing. There really is a a monotony to idolatry. Do something interesting. By contrast, very very quickly, by contrast, there is a legacy of fidelity. All the while we've had these uh, these boring kings and coups and coups and coups, uh, and all the all the while we've had our four kings in one king sixteen uh, in Judah. You've had Asa. Asa is a bit different. He's a faithful king in Judah. So if you turn back a page, one kings fifteen and verse eleven. All these years, you just had the one king of Judah. Uh, uh, chapter fifteen and verse eleven. He rules for 41 years. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. And there's details to that. He gets rid of the, uh, the, the shrine prostitutes, get rid, gets rid of all the idols. Verse 14, he's not perfect. So verse 14, although he didn't remove all the high places, didn't get rid of all the, the centers of, of, uh, of prostitution and idolatry, his heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He wasn't perfect. But he was following the Lord. He was faithful. Now, if you're a Christian, you and I, we want a legacy of fidelity. We want to do something that matters. We want to do something that lasts. It's a bit more exciting to take risks for the Lord and and give your life to his service than it is to chase after other things. The Christian is what? A bit like Asa. Not perfect. None of us would claim that we can earn a place in God's heaven by being faithful to him. No Christian would claim that. We know we're not perfect. We know we're deeply flawed. We know that we have a king in Jesus Christ who is the perfect one and who lived a perfect life for us. And because of his life, because we trust in him, we could go to be with the Lord in heaven. Yeah, we know that. That's wonderfully true. But knowing that, we think, well, I want to do stuff for him. I I I want a life that matters. I want to invest in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I want to do something that lasts. And we can do that. Even though we're not perfect, if we're Christians, we can have a legacy. We could achieve things that do last forever. It's always by his grace. It's always by his generosity. Whatever we achieve is, uh, is due to him and his kindness to us. I remember, as we finished this, I remember then uh, being something like 10 years old, don't know the exact time, I was about 10 years old, and my dad said, uh, Saturday afternoon, can you help me creosote the fence, you know, put a wood preservative on the fence? Yes, uh, I'd be delighted to, sort of, uh, and so um, I was, you know, we'd take, he'd paint a panel, we'd sort of, I'd have a panel and paint it, and he'd do the one next door, and whenever I was painting a, a, a fence panel, mine were basically pretty useless. I'd sort of slop some creosote on, but then Dad would have to go, mm, and sort of fill in the gaps and paint over it again, and really I was of not that much use to him. Uh, then I got a bit sloppy and was trying to do this a bit too quickly, and I flicked it and got a load of creosote in my eye. Uh, it's not good, it burns. And so then dad had to take me to A&E. Uh, and for the next two weeks, I was like a pirate with a patch 
um, and uh, not much, you know, so I wasted his time. Anyway, back A&E, got back, dad had finished the panel. Anyway, I looked at it, oh, the, you know, the fence is finished. Yes, you, you said you'd give me two pounds. Do I still get my two pounds for helping you? <laughs> and he sort of laughed and said, here's a fiver. Now, why did he do that? Because my work was so brilliant, it was not. He had to paint over everything I'd done and I wasted lots of his time. Why did he reward me? Because he's my dad. And he loves me. And he loved the fact that I was at least trying. For you and I who are Christians and we stand before the Lord in heaven, and he'll reward us for what we've done for him. Did he need us? He did not. Did we get in his way? Probably at times. Did he have to paint over all the mistakes we'd made? Yeah, I'm sure that's true. But he still rewards us. Why? Because he's a heavenly father who loves his children. And he loves it when we try to serve him, when we're faithful to him, not perfect. And he says to us, look, don't waste your lives. There's an incredible, boring monotony to idolatry. At first, it gets you really excited. But after a while, it just gets dull. But faithfulness to him, investing your life in a way that serves him, oh, it lasts. Only by his goodness. Only because he's kind. Even though we don't deserve it. But there's a legacy that lasts. Live for that, he would say. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we read a chapter such as this and it seems right that we find it a little monotonous and dull because that is the story of wickedness and evil. Oh, of course, for the, for the decade or so that Omri was reigning, people would have suffered and he would have encouraged an unjust legal system and an immoral country. It's no fun living under evil. And yet the verdict of history is that it was boring it achieved nothing. There was no legacy. It did not last. And so, Father, would we not in our own little ways just pursue lives of idolatry, chasing after things which do not last and do not matter? Would we invest our lives to serving you due to the grace of Jesus Christ? We know we can live lives that serve you. So help us to do that, we pray in his great name. Amen.